Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Um, yes, so anybody remember anything from five weeks ago or whatever it was uh, that about Nehemiah that they want to remind us what's happening about the history or the person or anything at all? They started rebuilding the wall. They did, indeed. Why are they building the wall? What, what inspired the wall building at this time? Oh, didn't they get money from or approval from some king? They did. Xerxes. Why did they get approval from this king? <laughs> Artaxerxes, by the way, is the name of the king. Okay. Why, why did they get approval from him? Did Nehemiah go and ask for permission? He did. And, I'm and he got try- permission and, a, and he got a pass. That's exactly right. That's really good. And I'm going to keep digging back. Why did Nehemiah go and ask the king for permission? What inspired that? He had heard that they were moving back, but they were not actually rebuilding. And so it made him sad. Correct, though. Nehemiah got a message from friends back in Israel saying, hey, it's it's pretty terrible here. The walls have not been rebuilt. It, it's disgraceful. We're, we're vulnerable to our enemies. You know, we've been here a while, but the walls are still not rebuilt. And the walls weren't rebuilt because the previous king, actually, no, because Artaxerxes himself years before had said they couldn't because he was worried about rebellion. Because thanks to Xerxes, who really weakened the entire Persian empire with his um, extravagant parties and lack of good leadership, um, the Zer- Artaxerxes is dealing with a whole lot of um, rebellion just popping up all over. And so the, the enemies to Nehemiah, and, I'm, and this is important because those enemies are going to come back again today, not to Nehemiah, the enemies to the building of the wall wrote Artaxerxes said, these guys are going to rebel, you shouldn't let them build the wall. And he said, right, tell them they can't build the wall. Um, but then he sent Ezra in and said, but Ezra can go do religious stuff, just don't build the wall. And now Nehemiah hears the wall's never been built. He goes to Artaxerxes. He says, hey, I'd really like to rebuild this wall. And at this point, it's, it's been 10 or 15 years. And Artaxerxes says, you know what, that's cool. Go for it. I trust you. And so that's, that's basically what happened in chapters one through three. They go back, they start building the wall. Um, and then coming into chapter, oh, and what we saw in chapters one through three is we learned a couple of things about Nehemiah. We learned that he, he goes to God in prayer a lot. So when he first got this message, he prayed. And then when he was about to go talk to the king, he prayed again. So he's definitely a a man for whom prayer is is a regular habit um, and an important one. Um, The other thing we learned about Nehemiah is he's very interested in rebuilding the community. Really, rebuilding the walls is almost just shorthand or a metaphor for what he really wants to do, which is rebuild the identity, the, the understanding of who they are as a peoples, that they don't have to be the most powerful nation in the world they're still God's people. And so he he does a lot of, in rebuilding the wall, it's very important to him that they do it together. He doesn't just want the wall rebuilt. He wants them to do it together so that they're part of it, so that they're part of the community. It makes sense also logistically, but it's really, it's very important for him. And we kind of see that as we go. What we're going to see in chapters four through six is that uh, he's going to hit some obstacles. He's going to run into several obstacles, which are temptations to be distracted or lose focus or stop building the wall. 
And we're gonna see how he responds to those. And in each of those moments, we see what's important to him and we see what's not important to him. We see what he's willing to stop the work for and what he's not willing to stop the work for, which is almost nothing. Um, and um, it just gives us a sense. And, it, and I think he's a, he's a very good leader. He's a, and I think there's even some good lessons for, for any of us who are involved in leadership of any kind. There's some good lessons here for us as well. All right. Before, I've got yeah. one question. Yeah. You're talking about Nehemiah building the community. Do you think that's why it was it was listed that each of these people, son of so-and-so, built the section, different sections of the wall? Yeah. It's important I, to record that. I think that's part of the reason because that is what's happening. And I think that's even how the, the later Jews understood the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. Remember, they saw them as one book. We've we've separated them in mm -hmm. uh, in later Gentile translations, but but in the Jewish world, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. Um, and I think that they saw them both as building the, the Jewish identity and the culture and the nation again. And so I think listing these people, showing their continued lineage, showing that, that everybody was engaged in rebuilding the area around them, I think that is uh, definitely to emphasize that for us, that they're, they're, they're regaining their sense of who they are. Even the fact that Nehemiah has people build in front of their houses, because that's not just that they happen to be building in front of a house they happen to be in. Remember where their houses are and the land they're on has always been really important to God. And so for them to be building in front of their house, again, is saying, this is where God has them. And now they're sort of responsible for that area. Um, and so it all becomes a part of an investment in the community itself and not just in this structure called the wall. So yes, I think that's good, Sue. Any other questions before we get started? All right, very cool. So Nehemiah 4, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer the sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite who was at his side said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break their wall of stones. So this is, this is interesting. These guys were not able, they can't force them to stop. Actually, even back in chapter three, just to remind you, when they started building, they said to him, you're not allowed to do this. And Nehemiah essentially said, he just ignored them because he knew he was, because the king had said they could do it and the king had given them materials. And so mostly he just doesn't even answer them because he knows that they're just wrong. And so, so they find that out, right? Presumably they realize, oh, the king's no longer on our side on this. They can build it. So now they change their tack. Now they're just going to come in and ridicule them and mock them. And, and I think just try to discourage them um, in a lot of ways. And I love their questions because if you actually answer all of their questions, they're pretty simple answers. You know, will they finish in a day? No, <laughs> but, but who thought they would? I mean, why is that an indictment? Um, you know, can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble? no is that really what anybody said they were going to do it's just weird you know how they kind of go about it and then Tobias like even a fox would break down the wall they, they can't do it you know it's just not there and it reminds me when they were building the temple and they were encouraged not to despise the day of small beginnings that that God said to them don't don't worry about the fact that you don't look like you're making a lot of progress right now because that's what I suspect is happening that the wall they've got so far is very small, right? And there's not much to it and they, they haven't got it built up very far. And so in some ways it probably does look like, gosh, just a fox runs by, he's gonna knock it over or, 
or you know, the answer is, will this be built in the day? The, the discouraging answer is no, it's gonna take a lot of days. You know, we don't have enough time, we're not gonna get it done. You know, what are we gonna do? You know, are they gonna offer sacrifices, they ask? I think the implication being, it's gonna take a miracle, you know, to build this wall. And, and so they're, they're just trying to discourage them. Um, I, 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 one of the things I like about the book of Nehemiah is that we kind of see the tactics that, that both people in our lives, sometimes people are opposed to what we're doing for one reason or another, the tactics that they might use <laughs> to keep us from moving forward, but also even just the tactics of the enemy, you know, the devil. And I think here, you know, they, they, they don't have power. So they just try to discourage the Israelites. They just try to unmotivate them to say, you can't do it. There's no reason to do it. Um, because they can't stop them externally. They figure, hey, we're just gonna, we're just gonna pull you down. And I think this is true even in our own lives. I think progress is slow. I think progress is smaller than most of us would like. Um, and it, I think it doesn't help that, and this is not a knock on anybody, but but Hollywood movies or books, that those are all built on on conflict and 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 exciting moments. And so we always, we always what we always see in there is epiphanies, right? People have an epiphany and their life has changed, right? They, they go through a whole thing and then they realize something and everything's fixed. And that just isn't the way my life has ever worked. Um, you know, every epiphany I've had has been followed by pulling back from the epiphany and then having the epiphany again later and going, oh yeah, I thought I already knew this. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's, the progress is kind of slow and, and it looks small. And it's, <laughs> in fact, it's so slow and small sometimes that it's hard to see the progress. I've, I've said this before, and it, it's just a good picture for me. You know, when you look at yourself every day in the mirror, you don't really see the changes. You don't see yourself, in my case, get grayer and heavier and, you know, older and more wrinkled. You don't, you don't see that each day. You know, today, I don't look that much different than I looked yesterday. Um, and yesterday, I don't look much different than I did the day before. And it feels like you should trace that back. You should never see the change. But if I look at a snapshot from 10 years ago, then immediately I see the change. I see, oh, there's been a lot of growth um, or decay or whatever the case is. There's been a lot of change over the, the last 10 years or 20 years. And I think spiritually, it's the same way. I think even in our maturity, it's the same way. We're close to it. We don't see it. We don't often take time to do a snapshot and say, you know, where have I gone? All that is just to say, this is, this is just one of the attacks the enemies of Nehemiah take. They're like, well, we're just going to discourage them because Nehemiah is counting on everybody to do the work. He's a good motivator. So this is what they're attacking is, can we unmotivate them or demotivate them faster than he can motivate them? Um, and it's interesting how Nehemiah responds to this, because I think that when, when someone attacks us and ridicules us, our tendency is to want to address that head on. And even culturally right now, there's kind of a thing that if you don't, if you don't address it head on, you're like, you're like letting them get away with something or you're being weak. Um, <laughs> you'll see people say that even politically, you know, you need to, you need to respond to it. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't respond to them at all. In fact, he responds internally, but he doesn't address them. And this is what it says he does. So they say all this, they're like, ah, they can't do any of this. They'll never be able to build it. It's too weak. They're too weak. It's going to take too long. A fox can knock it down. And this is how Nehemiah responds. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insight, insults in the face of the builders. And it's interesting. I mean, that's a pretty strong prayer. He's not a, a opposed to some, some pretty uh, infective prayers. But what's interesting is this is all to God. 
He doesn't say this to them. He doesn't turn around to them and speak against them. He doesn't hold a press conference. It's not even clear, you know, is this prayer even public or is this just to himself? Maybe he prays it publicly and encourages the Israelites, but it doesn't say that. All we know, because Nehemiah is writing it, is that he, when he hears the insults, he simply asks God to take care of it. He says, God, you take care of it. And then the very next statement, statement says this. So we re rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. So, <coughs> so what we see here, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what we see here is that he doesn't respond to them. He just prays. And then it just the next step says the people continue to be motivated. They worked with all their heart. And I think the implication is he is a good motivator, right? He did continue to motivate them. He continued to move them forward. But he honestly think in a, in a practical term, practical way, one of the ways he motivates them is he just doesn't give the, the naysayers any space at all. He just, he's like, I don't even need to respond to them. I mentioned this before because it's one of my favorite Jewish proverbs. It's not a scriptural proverb, but it's a, it's a, a Hebrew Jewish proverb. And it says, the dog barks and the caravan drives by. And the point is, if you're a royalty and you're sitting in the caravan and there's a dog barking at you from the road, you don't stop the caravan and get out and reprove the dog. You just drive by. <laughs> you, just, you just keep going. And I think that's what's happening here. Nehemiah is like, yeah, those guys are out there saying whatever. And I think the fact that he doesn't give them the time of day, that he refuses to be distracted, that he doesn't feel the need to defend himself, that he just turns it over to God and says, God will take care of it. I think that's part of what helps him keep everyone else motivated. They're like, well, Nehemiah's not worried about it. I guess we won't be either. And, and they just kind of press on. And it's not that there's never time that you might need to defend yourself or whatever. And we'll see Nehemiah will do some of that later. But I, I just think it's kind of an interesting approach. He just prays. He trusts God. He doesn't complain to Facebook. He doesn't complain to, you know, whatever the Israelite version of Facebook would have been at the time. You know, he doesn't, doesn't complain to the city. He just moves on. And they build half the wall. They get it halfway done, which is great. Um, so then we come to their next approach. They're not done, though. They're watching this wall get built and built, and they're, they're trying to discourage them, and that's not working. Next thing I want to point out is we're told we're now at the halfway point. And I don't know about you, but in big projects, I find the halfway point, strangely, to be the most discouraging point. You would think when you're halfway done, you would look and you would say, we are halfway done. Look at all the work we've done. But I find with really big projects, what usually happens, at least for me, and, and I've seen this in other people at times too, is that when you get halfway done, instead of looking back and saying, look at all the work we've done, we look ahead and go, oh my gosh, we have just as much work left to do. <laughs> and, it, and that's when it starts to feel overwhelming, I think. And that's when you start to wonder where you're at. Um, and um, I, you know, even with church plants, there's like a certain moment and, and studies have pretty much shown us it's not a halfway point because church plants are supposed to last forever, theoretically. But but it's a three-year mark. There's this, there's this moment where in a church plan, you hit the three-year mark, and that's when most churches find their, their period of discouragement, even if they've been successful, even if they've been growing, they get to three years and they just sort of feel like, oh my gosh, we've got so much work left to do, whatever that is. So what's about to come up, I just wanted in that context, that they're half done, which is great. Their momentum is good. They're moving forward. On the other hand, they're only half done, and they've been working at this a long time. And now they're thinking, we've got just as much work left to do as we did, and that's really hard. <clears throat> and so this is what it says. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. 
but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So the emotional discouragement doesn't work, so they move to, to absolute threats. The, the king isn't going to do it. The, the power play didn't work. The discouragement didn't work. So now they're just going to take the matter in their own hands. They start making threats. We will come fight you. We will come interrupt you physically. And interestingly, Nehemiah still responds with prayer, right? He he, this time he says we. So he invites everyone to be involved in it. Because at this point, I think there's not just discouragement out there. He can't ignore it kind of the way he did before. Now he has to say to the Israelites, I know they're threatening us, and I know that's real. So he does two things. He invites them to pray, but then they also post a guard day and night to meet the threat. So again, he invites the community into it. He says, we got this issue. They're gonna, now they're threatening us. Let's pray. Our God will protect us, but let's also plan. Let's also prepare. Let's also do the work. Um, which is a great, again, balance for a leader. Uh, balance is kind of the wrong word, but it's a great sort of combination for a leader to recognize that prayer, you know, let people trust, let people know that you can trust God, God's going to come through, but that doesn't mean you don't do any work. They're doing work anyway. They're building the wall. God isn't magically building the wall for them. And the same is true with the threat. This he responds to. This is not just a dog barking at the caravan. This is a dog that's nipping at the heels of the horses. And so he has to protect the horses. He has to do something just to keep the uh, keep the dogs at bay. And so that's what they do. They, they pray and then they post a guard day and night to meet the threat. So the momentum has shifted. They're starting it now. Now, not only has momentum shifted, but now the work's gotten harder because not only are they halfway done and they still have half of the work to do, but now they also have to guard themselves at the same time. So now it is getting harder and they are getting tired and they are starting to feel it. And that's what it says next. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. So what we have now is they're halfway through, they're doing well. Again, in one sense, they just have to do it again. Whatever they just did, they just have to do it again, but they're running out of energy. And now they're having to guard at the same time. And so now the people in Judah, right? The people internally are starting to be discouraged. It's not just external forces now. Now internally they're saying, we can't do it. On top of that, as they are doing this, as they're building the wall, they're creating more rubble. And I think literally they're like, now we not only have to build the wall, we have to remove the rubble so we can keep building the wall. It just, it's all gotten more complicated. And that's what they're saying. We're tired and it's gotten harder and we can't do it. We just can't do it. That's literally what they say. At the same time that there's discouragement now inside, the enemies haven't given up. It says also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Um, so the enemies are very aggressive. Here's the other thing that occurs to me about, um, about discouragement. I, I, I've always been intrigued by the, the fact that the word discouragement is literally means to lose courage, right? Discourage. And I think there is often a connection between our courage and our sense of um, what we think of as encouragement. You know, our our, our bravery, our courage, and our sense of that we can do it or not. Sometimes I think fear sneaks in and we don't even know it's fear, but it zaps our motivation, makes us not want to do it. And I think that's often true. It might be even just be fear of failure, right? Can lead to discouragement. And, and in this case, there's literal fear. They're like, we're going to be killed. <laughs> These guys are out here threatening to kill us. Okay, so they're, they're discouraged. And at least part of that discouragement you know, is that the enemies are also trying to kill them. And they're constantly reminded of that because now they have guards. They have to post guards, which also makes them more tired. So it's all kind of building up together. So you've got internal discouragement. You've got the external threat. And then you have this. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, 
<laughs> Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, this is interesting too, the phrase that came and told us 10 times over. Does that not sound to you like Nehemiah is frustrated? That sounds like a, a frustrated statement to me. He's like, I, I heard you the first eight times that you complained about this, stop already. And, and so I think we have this kind of trifecta of obstacles happening all at once. And I think these often do happen all at once where you've got external opposition to what's happening. You've got internal discouragement, partly because of the external opposition. And then you have what I'm gonna call adjacent, uh, well-intentioned opposition. So you've got Israelites who are nearby. They're not even part of the work, but they're nearby, but they feel like they need to, they feel like, oh, you don't know how hard what you're doing is. Let me come tell you how hard what you're doing is. I, I don't know if you've ever like, I just, well, I'll put it this way. I remember growing up, how often at each phase of my journey, there was always somebody around who would tell me how hard the next phase was going to be. Literally, I remember this starting from junior high. So in junior high, you go to junior high and then you go to high school. And I'm excited about going to high school. And I remember my older friends telling me, oh, you have no idea how hard high school is. Junior high, you thought was hard. Wait till you get to high school. This is gonna be really hard. And then in high school, when I got out of high school, I was so excited about graduating and I had my older friends telling me, oh, just now you're in the real world. Where you were before was fake, but this is the real world and this is gonna be really hard. And so then I, I, that was a bummer. And then I go to college and I'm excited about college. And sure enough, there's people up there waiting to tell me college is the hardest thing you've ever done. You have no idea how hard college is gonna be. And then I got married and I was really excited about getting married and people were like, oh, getting married is so much work. You have no idea how hard this is going to be. And then I decided to have kids and I had people who had kids telling me, oh my goodness, you have no idea. And then it was teenagers, you have no idea. And then it was when, when people move out, that, that's harder and, and you have no idea. It, it's, it's amazing to me. There's always people who aren't even in your work. That it, it, there's no, they have nothing to gain from this or lose from this, to be honest. But they're, they're adjacent and they're well-intentioned but somehow they always come in on the side of discouragement. <laughs> they, they come in to tell you why what you're about to do is destined for failure. Anyway, all these three things are happening right at the same time. You've got this internal discouragement, you've got actual opponents, and then you've got people who aren't actually even opponents, but they're, they're coming in complaining. They, um, this also may be, may be self-interested. It may not just be that they're adjacent well-intentioned. In this case, they do say, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So it could be that they're saying, look, if you guys build this wall, you're stirring up resentment among the surrounding territories, and they're going to attack us because you're building a wall. So that, that, that may also be while they're there. But again, the point seems to be that they, they have already given Nehemiah this information, and he apparently has not done what they want. And they keep coming over and over and over to tell him how much what he's doing is doomed and is going to doom them as well. And so right now, this is probably the most frustrating point for Nehemiah. It's, it's kind of a really critical turning point for the Israelites themselves. They're discouraged. The opponents are threatening them. And now you've got people on the edges who are, you know, they're not, the poles are not looking good for Nehemiah, right? We are all on the wrong track, say the Israelites, right? The wrong track, right track pole says wrong track. Um, and so what do you do now? You're halfway done with the wall. So this is the first time in all of these obstacles that have come up that Nehemiah actually pauses the work. Up until now, he's just pressed on, you know, external forces, uh, threats, uh, complaints, uh, attempts to discourage, he's just pressed on. 
Um, he set up a guard, but he pressed on. And now though, now he's got these internal, it's, it's, it's kind of all turned against him. He's got these internal discouragements, he's got these external forces, and he's got these adjacent people who are even not in their corner. Now he actually pauses the work for a moment and he takes stock and he says, what, what exactly is happening? Um, and he readjusts things. He makes some organizational changes because people are tired and because they can't do everything at once. They're trying to guard and they're trying to build. And so he says, okay, we do need to adjust things. We do need to make some changes. And this is what he does. He says, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their sword and spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. <clears throat> Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So he recognizes that the biggest issue here is in fact, the fear, that it is in fact that the threat from outside. And so he says, okay, we'll pause the work and we will just set up some guards. He, now he does it the same way he does building the wall in that he says, you're responsible for protecting your family, right? He says, fight for your family. Nobles, leaders, fight for the families in your area. He, again, he does it very communally and he does it very organized so that people are invested where they want to be invested. So in the same way that they were building in front of their house, now they are protecting their house. And so he, he, he assigns people, he sets them up, and then he goes to the leaders and says, you guys lead by example, stop complaining, stop whining, uh, don't be afraid. Remember that God is in charge. Yes, we've made some adjustments, so you can see I'm taking it seriously, but bottom line is God gave us this mission, we can count on him to do this. And again, sometimes you see leaders that'll do one or the other, but I think forget the, the benefit of, of doing both of reminding people God is in control, but also adjusting things so that people can see and, and be invested and be part of the benefit. Uh, Jolene sent a, um, a, tech, a chat. It says, hey, everyone, I was just saying that sometimes when you're going through something hard, someone might say, you should be happy. This should be easy for you. Yeah, that does happen a lot too, Jolene. You are correct. And that is strangely, usually discouraging, even though I'm sure that's not what they mean it to be. <laughs> I learned, even as a, a creative at Apple, teaching people how to use their computers, one thing I learned never to say before they asked me a question, or when they asked me a question, I learned never to respond with, oh, that's easy. Because then inevitably you begin to show them how to do it and it's not easy for them. And then they just feel dumb. Um, and so I never said that. Uh, I learned not to say that. I tried not to say it anyway. All right. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all return to the wall, each to our work. So they pause, they take a stance, they make it clear to people that we're not done, we're not stopping. And interestingly enough, even for the enemies, all it took was a sort of a determined stance. They didn't, this is one of those moments where they stood up to the bully and the bully went, oh, I guess we weren't that serious. Um, and, and they didn't, they just said, we're not gonna let you do this. We're gonna fight because this is important to us. Because all the enemies really wanted, they don't want a war. All they really want is for them to stop building the wall. And when they saw Shah that they weren't going to stop, um, that they were willing to fight, then they were like, well, okay, it's not going to happen. Um, and so then now they go back to their work. But we'll see that even as they go back to their work, they still have to now be aware of this other threat. And that's what it says. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half <coughs> were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The reality of this is means that their workforce has been cut in half, right? So again, that could be discouraging. Now it's going to take longer, but it's not because now they feel they're protected and they literally, again, think of how communal this is. They know someone has their back. 
somebody's working, somebody's guarding. They always know there's someone who has my back. I can now work without worrying about whether someone's about to get me. Um, and, and so again, as a community, they're coming together in this. Um, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. So all the leaders, again, they, they, they show, we're going to have your back. We're going to protect you while you do this. Um, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. So even though they're, they're, they can focus on the work, at the same time, those who are carrying, those who are moving around, kind of most vulnerable in some ways, they are carrying with one hand and holding a weapon with the other so that they're always also prepared and ready. Um, and then the builders themselves, they have a sword at their side. They're not, they're not holding it because they got to work. And there's people who have their back. But if push came to shove, they would have time to get their sword. You know, if the, if the buddy that's watching out for them starts to fight, they could pull their sword out. So there's a definite sense of preparation. There's a definite sense of taking it seriously, but they're not stopping the work, right? The, the, the point is, Nehemiah is very focused and he's not going to let anything get in his way. And it doesn't matter what it is. He's just going to keep at it and he's going to keep going. Um, so it's hard work and it's gotten harder, but the fact is that people are not as discouraged anymore because Nehemiah has taken seriously the obstacle. He's taken seriously the issue and he's made plans for it. And they know that they're, they're part of him and they're, um, that, they're, that he's part of it, that he's engaged with them and that he's listening to them. And so in one sense, you can even say they were losing momentum halfway through and this new threat may have been part of what really rejuvenated them too, right? Now they've come together against the threat. Now they have a new taste of victory. Now they have, it's not just the same old, same old. Now there's new things, maybe harder, but it's different. And now they can kind of press on. So you might argue that the threats may have actually helped spur some of the second half of the work to kind of keep going. But I love this next part and what Nehemiah does here too. It says, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. What's the purpose of sounding the trumpet? It's to let the, the trumpet is the person who says oh, the enemies are coming right? It's the watchman. It's the person who's like, well, so if, if they are coming and if we need help, we sound the trumpet. So the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. I think what's happening here is really cool. What's happening is that Nehemiah is saying, look, I know I'm trying to build a community and I'm trying to do this in a way which builds community. But the reality is we have threats from outside and we're really spread out. So we forget. It's like it's we can start to feel isolated. Is that person really in my corner? Is that person really watching out for me? And, and what about Nehemiah? He's way out there. You know, am I really connected to the rest of these groups, to the rest of this community? And so what Nehemiah does is he uses the trumpeter as a way of saying we're all within earshot of the trumpet. And as long as we're all within earshot of the trumpet, guess what happens when that trumpet blows? We will all come together. We will all be there. So if you are caught, if you're being attacked, my trumpeter will blow and, and we'll all be there. Again, it's another way of saying we are all in this together. We have your back. We may feel spread out, but we're, we're just a trumpet blow away. That's it. You know, it's, we're just going to be right there. Um, and then, as he always does, See, I love this about Nehemiah. He's so organized. He's so prepared. He's so planned. He's so strategic. He's doing all these things that are really smart. But as he does all of them, he keeps reminding them, but that isn't why we're going to win. He keeps reminding them, we're going to win because God's going to win. That's why we're going to win. 
And that's how he closes this. He says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Think about what he could say. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and we'll fight together. That would be all right. That's not what he says. He says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and our God will fight for us, right? We're just going to come together and God's going to do the fight. And I, so I, I think Nehemiah, again, he's a, he's a man of prayer because he really believes that God's in control. So he always goes to God first. He's also very tuned into the people. He's strategic. He listens to them. He makes the decisions he needs to make, and he's very focused. He doesn't let anything distract him. It's all about getting this done. It's all about getting this accomplished. We're going to get this wall built. We're going to get this community rebuilt. We're going to reestablish who we are, and we're not going to let anybody inside or outside distract us from that. We have each other's back. We're in this together. We're just a trumpet sound away from each other. Um, before we go on with this, we have a little bit more here in this chapter. Before we go on to kind of the next obstacle, which comes up. Um, oh, actually, let's just finish four and then I'll ask. He says, so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. And neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. What's happening now is that Nehemiah is doubling down on the focus. He says, first of all, if you live outside the walls, I want to ask you to stay inside the walls for now. First of all, it'll be safer for you. We'll be more connected. We'll know you're here. But it'll also, it'll also just, again, we'll all continue working together. Secondly, I'm not just asking that from you guys. I'm asking it from the leaders too. He says, me and the rest of us, <coughs> we're not even going to take off our clothes. We're going to sleep you know, in, in spurts and in shifts and get up and we're going to be right there. We are just going to double down on the work. We're going to get it done sooner. We're at this halfway mark, but it's going to take us less time, even though we're now have more things to do because we're going to double down and we're going to just all work even harder. And, and, and don't ever put your weapon down. That way you don't have to worry about it. That outside force is there. Be prepared, be vigilant. But don't stop working. Don't give up working. Let's even work harder. So that's kind of the where he is. He's really uh, kind of leaning into it at this point. Um, before we go on to chapter five, any any thoughts, any questions, any comments at this point? All right. Very cool. If you have any, feel free to interrupt. Um, so here we go. Chapter five. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. So here is the new, the new distraction. Uh, so the new distraction is not external at all. Now it's internal. Now the external threats are starting to abate. And we've all seen this, by the way, whether you're in a family or in a country or in a church or in a social group, anytime you're in a community and that community is threatened, the community pulls, tends to pull together. The community tends to unite. When that threat from the outside dissipates, sometimes that's when the community tends to divide. <laughs> they, they, they lose that. They're, they're united against a common enemy. Now they start to have issues internally. And that's what happens here. The, the outside threat has started to dissipate. They're being alert. They're being vigilant. But the guys aren't going to attack. They've really seen. We were already told. They saw that God had frustrated their attack, so they kind of just backed off. So even though they're vigilant, now that threat is becoming less and less. And as it does, we now find out that there is internal strife. Now here again, for Nehemiah, the question is, how does this impact the community? How does this impact what we're doing? Um, and that's, all, that's what I care about. I'm, we're going to focus on this, and I'm not going to even let this internal strife distract me, but it has to be dealt with, and how do we deal with it well? And that's where we are. It says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry <coughs> against their fellow Jews. 
Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. By the way, that's a perfectly reasonable complaint. <laughs> there is a famine, we find out. There's a famine going on, and some of the workers are saying, we're working on the wall. We don't have any money. We, we can't, we don't have any grain. You know, we, what are we supposed to do with our farmland and how are we supposed to eat? And, and, and so it takes more work to, to, to grow the food because of the famine, but we have less time to do it because we're working on the wall. And so, so they're like, but not everybody's that way. You know, not, there's not an equal class system across the, the Israelites. Some people are more wealthy, some are less. They're saying, you know, we're, we're stuck. We have a lot of sons and daughters. We have a lot of children to take care of. And, and, and yet we have the same responsibilities as the guy who has no children to take care of, and we're starving. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So others are saying, yeah, we're not even working on it as much. We're just having to mortgage it all so that we can buy grain so that we don't starve while we continue working on the wall. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our field and vineyards. So they're saying, you know, on top of all this, we still have to pay uh, King Artaxerxes over there. And that's really killing us um, because now the taxes are too much. We can't afford to eat. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Here's what's really happening. There's, there's inequality among the Israelites. You have some who are very poor and you have some who are not. And what's happening is that those who are very poor are having to take loans from those who are not. But in the Jewish law, as you go through Leviticus, you can take a loan. If you can't pay back the loan, one of the options is to become an indentured servant. So that's what's happening. They're taking out loans. They're not able to pay them back. They've already mortgaged their vineyard, so they can't offer that as collateral. So what happens is their children now have to work for their fellow Jews uh, for a period of time, for a period of seven years or whatever. But now consider this. They're barely surviving. They're building a wall. They're guarding from an attack. They're trying to run their crops, but now they don't have their sons and their daughters to help them in any of that because they're working for somebody else who doesn't actually need it because they're wealthy already. They loaned you money, but now your daughter's working for them when you really need the work. So this is causing, as you can imagine, a lot of internal strife. Now they're like, look, I'm tired. You know, you, you're, Nehemiah, you're trying to, you're telling us we're all in this together. But the truth is, Nehemiah, we're not in this together. It's different for me than it is for him. And it's different for them than it is for you. So don't tell me we're in this together. Don't tell me that you blow that trumpet and you'll come to my help because not only are people not coming to my help, but they're charging me interest and they're taking my children and they're taking my vineyards and they're taking my fields when I ask for help. And that doesn't seem like somebody that's on my side. That feels like a stranger. That feels like somebody who's taking advantage of me. And so this is sort of the internal conflict that's happening now as things are moving forward. Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Again, his response could be, we've talked about how focused he is. And I want you to see the difference between being remembering what you're focused on and just being sort of stubbornly single-minded. Nehemiah is focused on building a community as well as building a wall. And when he hears their outcry, he could have said, look, I'm too busy. Remember how I didn't listen to Sobaya and Tambala? They were like insulting us. I didn't listen to them. He could do that. Some leaders do that. He could say, you guys are just complaining, work it out, figure it out, dig down, suck it up, work harder. But he doesn't do that. When he hears them internally, this is not the dog barking at the caravan. This is somebody 
you know, this is one of the horses pulling the caravan or someone in the caravan. This is not, this is not a complaint from the outside distracting him. This he takes very seriously. And he's very angry when he realizes what's happening. He says, that's not, that's not what it means to be a community. That's not how we should be working together. So he says, when I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. And I love that too. Again, being very angry doesn't mean you don't stop to think. <laughs> he's very angry, but he stops and he thinks, what does this mean? Why is this happening? And how do we fix it? Who do I approach, right? And he says, I pondered them in mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So he's like, look, I, I know where this is coming from. This is coming from the top down. It's pretty clear. It's the people with means and it's the people with power who are taking advantage of the rest of these people. That's not the Levitical way. It's not the Jewish laws, but that's what's happening. Um, and so he says, he accused, I accused the nobles and officials and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So he's not saying you cannot loan them things. He's just saying, just help them out, loan them things until they can pay you back, but don't be charging them extra. Don't be making a profit off them. That's not where we are right now. Now there's no Levitical law that says you can't make a profit off a loan, but there are Levitical laws that say you shouldn't take undue advantage to make a profit off a loan. And there are Levitical laws which strongly suggest that you should not make a profit off a loan from your fellow uh, community. Um, so I, and, and it definitely there are laws that say that if you do make a profit, if you do charge interest, it shouldn't be above a certain amount. And all of that is happening. All of that is happening and it's wrong. And he says, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. He's like, you guys think about what's just happened. We've all been slaves to the Persians, to the Babylonians, and now we're coming back and we're free. And what are you doing? You're treating them just like the Persians and the Babylonians did by enslaving them again. That's what he says. He says, we brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. The reality is he calls the noblemen together and his accusation lands. You know, they, they, they're speechless because they're like, um, yeah, that's exactly what we've been doing. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Nehemiah says, look, I've been lending people money. I've been giving people money, but I'm not charging any interest. And by the way, I think when Nehemiah is lending money, and we're going to see this later, he's very loosely expecting to get any of it back, right? I mean, when you lend without interest, there is a degree to what you're saying. Yeah, when you're in a better position and you can, you can return it, great, return it. But there's also a degree for Nehemiah where I think he's like, look, I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not holding it over their heads. I'm not indenturing their children. I'm not taking their vineyards as collateral. I'm just saying, let me help you out while you need the help and you can give it back when you can. And that's totally okay. He says, so let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So he calls the nobles together and he doesn't just say, stop doing it. He says, you need to fix what you've done. If you have taken a vineyard, give it back. If you've taken a, a, a house, give it back. And not only that, I want you to give them back the interest you've charged them. I want you to just give it all back to them, which is a nice, a nice but important and necessary windfall for those who don't have it. Again, when I say windfall, I don't mean it's going to make those people rich. It's just going to make them able to eat again. And, and so this is a really, you know, but it would, it would be nice, you know, hey, you, you're going to get all that back. I think the implication, by the way, is also that the if they're giving the vineyards and everything else back, 
that all the indentured servitude is also probably being wiped clean too. That they're, they're, they're likely just sending the daughters back and the sons back and saying, yeah, none of that matters anymore. Just pay us back when you can. We're not gonna take collateral. We're not gonna charge interest. We're not gonna require payment right now. Uh, we're just here to help you out. And they respond well. They say, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. You know, we'll give it back and we'll just, we're not gonna ask them for collateral or interest or anything else. Um, and again, I just want you to notice that Nehemiah does not pause to speak to Tobiah, Sambalat, ever. He never stops to talk to them. But when it's within his own camp, he does stop to talk to them. And he says, here's what we need to do and here's how we need to fix it. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So they said, we'll do it. They responded well. And then he's like, let's get the, let's get the priests in here who can really hold you accountable to this um, with an oath. And so they do that. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possession anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And I want you to think about two things. One is there's probably a degree to which Nehemiah is simply saying, God's going to deal with you in the way that you deal with these people. That's something Jesus says a lot, right? In the way that you are with other people, you know, you're generous or not. And he could be saying that to a degree, that if you continue, if you go back on this promise, don't be so sure that your own property won't suffer. But it's interesting when Nehemiah says that, because Nehemiah also has the power to make that actually true, right? I mean, if they go back on their promise, he can remove them from their property. He can say, well, that's fine. I'm giving all of your property to this guy because you didn't, you didn't follow your promise and you made an oath in front of the priest and in front of me. So it could just be that God will do it, but it could also be that Nehemiah is saying, this is the law. This is the principle. This is what's going to happen. You go back on your promise, you will lose property rather than them losing property. And at this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So worked out well. Again, Nehemiah is a great leader somehow. He managed to motivate them, convince them, put them back on the right track, showed them that they were taking advantage of the poor. And it was ridiculous that they were doing so because it was hurting the whole community. I think that's what he was able to show them, was that when you are taking advantage of the poor in your community, you're hurting yourselves. You're hurting all of us. You think you're enriching yourself, but you're not. You're hurting all of us and you need to stop. He goes on, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. So here's what he's saying. He's the governor. As the governor appointed by the king, by King Artaxerxes, he has certain <coughs> benefits that he's allowed to take advantage of. Number one, he gets a portion of the taxes. Remember how they said part of the problem was that the taxes that are levied on them is, just, is making it hard for them to eat? Previous governors were responsible for some of those taxes because they get a portion of those taxes and not only do they get a portion of those taxes, but they also get an allotment of food directly from the king. They just get, and you're going to see this allotment is huge. They get an allotment of food from the king every month. So they are getting taxes, but they don't even, it's like they're getting a salary and they're getting bored. So they don't even have to spend the salary on the board. And <laughs> the governor also gets a piece of land, according to the king, right? They get their, their own land there. And Nehemiah says, I didn't take advantage of any of that. I didn't come here to be governor to enrich myself. So I'm not, <coughs> I'm not taking the taxes. I'm not taking the, the salary, so to speak. I'm not taking 
the food that the governor gives me. We'll see what he does with it in a second. He doesn't send it back to the king, but he we'll see what he does with it. But I'm not taking the food the king sends me. And on top of that, I'm not acquiring any land. What is he doing? He's devoting himself to the work on the wall. I am doing what I'm asking everybody else to do. I am right there in the thick of it with them. That's what Nehemiah is doing. So in all of the things we see about Nehemiah's leadership, one of the things that's very cool is he absolutely leads by example. He's absolutely right there. And I think this is part of the key to his ability to motivate, right? Because he says a lot of things that people wouldn't necessarily listen to, right? When he goes to the nobles and he says, you're doing this wrong, part of the reason they respond to him is they look at him and go, yeah, and he's not doing that, <laughs> right? They're like, you know, he has the moral authority to tell us this because we've seen him be very generous. Um, when he goes to the people and he says, don't be afraid and keep working on the wall and we can do this, they look at Nehemiah and they're like, you know what? He's working on the wall. You know, he's not sitting in his governor's mansion telling us what to do. He's actually doing the work. I think that is part of what makes him able to motivate them is that they see that he's just, he's just in it. He's just with them. He's just part of it. Um, and he's not taking, he's not taking the privileges and prerogatives that he has to enrich himself. He's taking them to enrich others. And this is a huge point we see in scripture a lot. Jesus himself does this, right? By laying aside his divinity in order to become a man, in order to die on the cross for us. And, and this is what Nehemiah is saying to the nobles and officials. You are using your power and you're using the wealth you have to enrich yourself more. And he says, what I'd rather you do, actually what I'm requiring you to do, is use your power and your wealth to enrich those who need it in the community so that we as a community all excel, that we all grow, that we're, that we're all better off. Um, and Nehemiah leads the way in that. And we're going to see that. He goes on, he says this. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine in all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Now, there's two ways to read this, and I'm not sure which is the correct way, but either one of them give us, I think, the right picture of Nehemiah. One way to read it is that Nehemiah doesn't take the food from the king at all. And that, that this food that he's giving, that he's feeding 150 Jews every day, is all from his pocket, that he's just doing it himself. The other way to read it is that he's taking this food that's allotted to him as governor, and instead of just using it to enrich himself, he's using it to bless other people, to, to bless 150 Jews that come sit at his table every day. Whichever way you read it, the point is he's taking whatever he has and using it to bless other people. He's using it to enrich them rather than himself. And he's not placing extra burden on the people by claiming the taxes or claiming the allotments of food uh, for himself or even claiming land for himself. Because as he says, the demands were heavy on these people. He knows it, he understands it. He doesn't sit there as governor and say, well, lucky me, I don't have to pay those taxes. No, he looks at it and he says, wow, that, this is rough. It's rough. And, and, and I'm asking them to do this work and it's rough. And he has a certain sort of compassion for that even as he calls them to do the work. But the way that compassion shows itself is that he does what he can to make them more able to do it. He gives, he does what he can to enrich them, to, to, to keep them healthy and whole and complete, so to speak, as they go on. And then he says this, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. I don't think this is a quid pro quo. I don't think he's saying to God, you owe me, God, you owe me because I've done well. I think he is simply saying that uh, this, this is why he does it. For him, it always comes back to this because God's in charge. You know, he's saying, I, I, I trust 
that God will take care of me, that God will enrich me in a sense, not, 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 not necessarily materially, but that God will take care of me as I'm taking care of other people. I can count on that. I can count that God will do that. That's who God is. That's how God is, has always been with me, says Nehemiah. And so it's just a prayer. It's, I don't think it's a demand, but I think it's a reasonable prayer. And I think it's okay to say that. Remember me, God, remember me. Um, I've done my best. You know, I've done what I can. I'm trying to do it right. And, uh, and so God, remember me for that. Any comments on chapter four or five? I think it's interesting that, I mean, like what they were doing is kind of like one of the bigger reasons why they were brought into judgment and went to Babylon in the first place with how they were like oppressing the poor and not like shepherding the rest of the people. And yeah, that's a really good point. I like that a lot. The oppression of the poor was a big part of, of what the prophets kept telling them they were doing. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. Anybody else? All right. Chapter six. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left into it. So remember the last check-in was they were halfway done. Now they've had these struggles, but now they're done, except for the doors. We'll see that in a second, but they're done. There's no gaps in the walls, right? There's The gates are still there. That's a sort of a gap, but there's no holes in the walls. There's no unintended gaps. And, and the walls have been built. Now they're full. They're there. They, they did it. They accomplished it. Remember at the halfway period, they were like, we can't do it. It's impossible. But they did. <laughs> They've done it. So we have all these obstacles. We have external obstacles. We have internal strife. We have people abusing each other. We have oppression. We have threats. We have discouragement. We have, you know, just the famine, you know, things that are out of our control. We have all these obstacles that come up and Nehemiah just keeps going. And he leads with compassion and he leads with humility, but he also leads with decision and focus and, and discipline. And he leads and he keeps going. And now here we are. And now the enemies who've been trying to stop him, they look around and they go, oh my goodness, it's done. <laughs> Remember when we were saying they could never build this? Remember when we were saying a fox could knock it down? Well, now here it is. And that's what it says. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So everything's there, just the doors aren't there yet. Sambalat and, and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. He says, but they were scheming to harm me. And you may think, how did he know? And I would say, uh, you would have to be dumb and blind and deaf not to know. I mean, they have, why would they all of a sudden be friendly to him? It's like they, he's now accomplished everything that, that they've been fighting. And they're like, hey, buddy, come hang out with us. And he's like, uh, no, nah. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a great idea. And, and I would say, I guess, you know, at least he's not, he doesn't fall, play, fall prey to flattery either. He's not like, oh, yeah, oh, good. I won them over. You know, he's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't see any point, you know, in doing that. Um, so it says, uh, they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And I love his answer because this is really what, if he had ever responded to them in the past, which he really hasn't even bothered to do until now. But now they give him like a polite invitation. So I think he figures he has to at least respond politely, right? You know, civility. So, but his response is what he's been doing all along, which is to say, yeah, you're not that important. Thank you. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm engaged in something really big. Why would I leave what I'm doing to come talk to you? You're just not, you're not worth it. And I think, again, that's important because they think of themselves as really important people. They are officials and leaders and governors of the surrounding territories, right? And so they think they're important. And they think that when they say to him, you can't do it, he should listen. And then when they say to him, we're going to attack you, he should listen. And he hasn't done that. So now when they say, hey, come have dinner with us, come, come, let's be chums, they think he should listen because they're important people. And his answer to them is, guess what? You're not really that important. <laughs> what I'm doing is more important than you. And that's just the way it is. So thanks for the invite, but no thanks. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. And I can only imagine, this is shorthand, right? I can only imagine that each time they send the message, they're more flowery, or they're, they try to be more persuasive, or they, they are more flattering, or, they're, or they more, make more suggestions, you know, hey, we'll, we'll buy you dinner. I mean, whatever, <laughs> you know, we'll feed you oxes and whatever. I imagine they, they, they sweeten the cup. And every time, but I can also imagine every time he just gives exactly the same answer. You know, like he's not even going to take the time to craft a new answer. He's just like, yeah, I'm involved in a great project. And why would I leave that work to come talk with you? Um, and so they keep trying. And it just, again, goes back to this is kind of the, this is the, 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 the prevailing characteristic of Nehemiah is his incredible focus. And for him, that's always on God first, right? It's always prayer. It's always God doing the work. And he's never distracted from that. And because of that, he's just not distracted from the work either. Look, I came here for one reason. The other thing to remember is he's not moving to Jerusalem. Remember, the king expects him to come back. As far as Nehemiah is concerned, he is on here on a short-term mission to build this wall, to build this community, to revitalize Israel, and then he's heading back. Um, so for him, it's, it's always been that. So why would he stop in the middle of that? This is a specific task that he's engaged in. These guys are just an annoyance. And mostly they're just barking dogs and he just drives on. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. Now, <laughs> these guys think they're really sneaky, um, but it's really kind of ludicrous. They're just losing and they don't know what to do and they're getting desperate. So what they do is this fifth time when they send him a message, they, they, they ask him to come, but then they also send him this not very cleverly veiled blackmail letter. That's really what's happening here. They're like, well, if you won't respond to our invitation, we're gonna blackmail you so that you'll come be with us. And so this is the letter that they send to him. I love this because it even says in it, it with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. It's almost like they're just, they want him to sort of discover the letter, right? Um, and pretend that they're just, he's just discovering the letter, but it's clearly written to him and it's for him. And this is what it says. It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true. I love that, by the way. Um, anybody who's ever been in management, you've probably experienced this. As a pastor, I've experienced this a lot. Whenever anybody comes with a complaint, not anybody. When some people come with a complaint, you can be sure that they're going to tell you how many other people agree with them, right? So all the nations, that's pretty big. And then, oh, and Geshem, my buddy Geshem says it's true too, so it must be. Um, you know, it's, it's a weird sort of argument, but it happens a lot. It's just a way of saying, it's not just me, I'm not the only one. Uh, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Notice, they have gone back to their original argument. <clears throat> this is what they said initially to King Artaxerxes, and they've just returned to it. They don't have really new information, but this is, this is where it gets interesting. 
Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Listen to how they say this. We've heard these terrible things about you and we wouldn't ever do it, but somehow the king's going to hear this. So you need to meet with us to straighten out this confusion so that we can assure the king that you're not going to revolt. It's, it's dumb. What they're really saying to him is, we are going to tell the king that this is what you're doing unless you come back to us. And what's interesting is they do not understand Nehemiah or his relationship with King Artaxerxes, do they? Because one thing we know from the very beginning of his book is that the king likes Nehemiah and trusts Nehemiah. So it doesn't seem likely that their report to the king will carry any weight whatsoever because the king will ask Nehemiah and he will say, really, do you think I want to be king? And I think King Artaxerxes would say, no, I really don't think you do <laughs> because that's never been where you've been at. Um, so they tried to blackmail him. They're like, come meet together so we can prevent this, this slander that's coming from, I don't know where, from all the nations, so we can prevent this from coming out. And he says this, I sent them, I sent him this reply, nothing like what you were saying is happening. You are just making up out of your head, which is just about as plain spoken as you can get. I just, I just love that he's just like, yeah, you just, you're just making that up. <laughs> That's just, and out of your head specifically, yeah. Nothing like this is happening. You're making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking, Nehemiah's like, I know what they're doing. They're trying to scare us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So here again, what's his response? He's like, you guys, just stop. You know, this is getting ridiculous. You're making it up in your head. But then he's like, but I do see again, now people are like, oh my gosh, the king's gonna find out. Oh no, he's gonna come down on us. Oh, we should stop. And, and what is Nehemiah's response? I prayed, strengthen my hands. He's just like, God, just keep us going. You know, it, you're, you're bigger than them. You brought it this, brought us this far. We're going to finish. We just got to put the doors in the gates. You know, I, I'm not really worried about it, but God, we do need you to strengthen our hands. One day I went to the house of Shemima, son of Deliah, the son of Mahidabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. Oh, so here's a new twist. So he goes to somebody uh, who's there. He goes to one of the Israelites. He goes, he's in Jerusalem. He goes to this guy's house. Um, and the guy says, hey, let's you and I meet in the temple and we'll barricade ourselves in the temple because I've heard that there are people coming to kill you. Now, before we even read any further, you can probably guess what Nehemiah's response will be, <laughs> right? I mean, does, do you, does he strike you as the guy who's going to be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go hide in the temple because of this rumor that people are coming to kill me. I, that just doesn't even feel like anything he would do. And of course he doesn't. He goes on, he says this, but I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Now you could read this a couple of ways. One is you could read it as sort of a, a proud statement. Like I'm too important to do that. I don't think that's what it is. I think what he literally means is I have a job here. I am the governor and I'm in charge of getting these walls built and I'm in charge of building our community and I can't do those things if I'm hiding in the temple. It's inappropriate for me to go hide in the temple, even if that's something that should be done, which again, I, I think he's pretty convinced this is just yet another ploy. Um, and, but, but, but his bottom line is he's just like, again, I have a job. 
And my job doesn't involve going to the temple and hiding in the temple. He says this, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So he's like, ah, now, you know, they're paying people within the within the community to try to distract me from the task, from the job. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Now, this last sentence makes me wonder if there's more going on here as well. He could simply be saying the sin is cowardice, right? The sin is running and hiding. I don't think that's it. I actually think there may be this other thing going on, which is, remember that throughout the Israelite Old Testament history, there was always this nice, clear separation between the ruling po political power and the priestly power right? The kings and priests were never supposed to be the same. And one of the ways that God prevented them from being the same is that the kings were forbidden from doing priestly duties. Do you remember we've had numerous examples of that going all the way back to Saul? The real reason Saul got kicked out, I mean, there was a lot of reasons, but the, the reason that God kind of pulled the trigger that said, you are not going to be king anymore, was because Saul did not wait for the priests to come to do the priestly duties. He did them himself. And God said, I told you to wait. And, and, and that was bad. Then we have Hezekiah, even good Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah was a really good king, but at one point he went into the temple to do a priest, to do something in the temple. And he got leprosy because of that. Now he repented and God extended his life, but even Hezekiah, good king, faithful king, there's been this strong delineation. Actually, even before Saul, back to the time of Moses, we had these situations where people weren't allowed to go into the tabernacle and do priestly things unless they were of the priestly lineage. And so it's been very important to God for the Israelites to keep those powers separated. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time talking about why, but I think even in our own history, we can see that anytime the church and politics have been too closely united, um, for example, the, the, the uh, papal system during the Middle Ages, anytime they've been too closely united, there have been issues. It's been a problem and, and because there's too much power in one hand. And so God has always kept them separate. And the only person throughout all scripture that's ever really told they can be priest and king is Jesus. <laughs> and when you're God, then you're allowed to have all the power consolidated because you already do. Um, so, so I think part of what might be happening here is that he's saying, I'm not going to go into the temple and I'm not going to do whatever we would do in the temple, make sacrifices or, 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 or please or whatever we would do to kind of earn God's approval so we won't get destroyed. I'm not going to take that upon myself. So he might just be talking about not hiding, but he might be specifically referring to the idea of hiding in the temple. That to him, he's trying to be really careful. And that might be the sin he's trying to avoid, where he's kind of merging those two together. Because why not hide somewhere else? You know, why not lock yourself up somewhere else? Um, and so that might be part of the reason. And that might also mean be what he meant when he said, should someone like me go into the temple? He might mean not someone as important as me, but he might mean someone not as important as me, someone who isn't a priest, someone who that isn't my responsibility. I'm not going to use that that way. I'm not going to go hide that way. Um, so it could be that whatever it is, bottom line is he's correct. He sees this as just another ploy to distract him, whether he's distracted because he's discredited because he goes into the temple and does something he shouldn't do, or whether he's distracted because he's hiding. In either case, the bottom line is, I am not here to do that. I'm not going to hide away. I'm here to do this job. And, you know, you're, it, it's a nice, it's a nice trick to use someone in my inner circle to try to get me to do this. But I know that you're not speaking from God. You're speaking from Sambalad. You're speaking from the enemy. And then 
uh, and then Nehemiah prays. Again, all the way through this, this writing of Nehemiah, we just have his prayers just scattered in here. He says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So, so it sounds like there were a group of prophets that are, that are saying, God wants you to do this because the enemies are coming to get you. And Nehemiah says, I just know that's not true. That's not why God sent me here. Um, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Will the temple be finished in a day? No, but 52 days is pretty good. Actually, that's not bad at all. Given that everything that we went through, didn't it feel like longer to you? All the distractions that we heard about, it just felt to me like this must be taking much longer. And yet it didn't, it didn't. It took uh, less than two months. That, that, that's impressive. That's actually really good. Um, but if you think that the enemies are done because he's completed the wall, you haven't been paying much attention to the enemies. <laughs> they just don't like Nehemiah at this point. They're going to do whatever they can. So it goes on. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Oh, uh, uh, oh, yeah. Let me keep going. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. So all the way along this, all the surrounding nations were like, they're not going to get it done. They're, 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 they're dumb. They're small. They're tiny. They're not going to succeed. You know, but now it's done. And now we have that moment where all the nations are like, oh, we've heard stories about this God in history. And now it appears this God let them build their wall. And this again goes back to Nehemiah. Why, why are they why are they scared that their God helps them do it? Because every time Nehemiah opens his mouth, he claims God's credit rather than his own. He, he doesn't say we built this wall and people are afraid of me. He says, God built the wall and all the nations suddenly realized, huh, looks like God is not mad at them anymore, right? That's probably how the nations thought about it. Looks like God is actually uh, helping them again, which for a while he apparently wasn't. Also, and but then here's how we know the opposition hasn't stopped. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. So think about what this says. This says that some of the nobles, some of the people in leadership, some of the important powered people in Nehemiah's own circle are corresponding with Tobiah. There's no good explanation for this, right? I mean, there's no explanation which doesn't make the nobles look bad for why they're corresponding with Tobiah. It's pretty clear and he goes on to tell us why they're corresponding. It may be well-intentioned, perhaps, but it's foolish. It's not good. They are consorting with the enemy. And you may ask why, and who knows? Could it be partly because, remember, he came down on the nobles, and he was like, quit quit abusing your power? And some of them may have been like, well, we kind of liked that gig. You know, what? We, we're, we're little bugs that we can't do it this way. Who knows? Although we're going to find out. It's a little bit less sophisticated than that. There may just be familial connection for some of these guys. And this is what we read. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. So what that means is we have this enemy of Nehemiah, who has somehow schmoozed himself into good graces with some of the nobles of Judah. And one of the ways he's done that is that through marriage, there's a connection. And I, I want to bring this up because one of the difficult passages we read about the last time we were together was how strongly Nehemiah and Ezra both reacted to the idea of mixed marriages, right? And, and, and we, it's hard not to look at that as a racial thing and like, oh, they're just being unenlightened. But, but then notice here 
that it's causing this exact conflict. It's causing a, a, them to be consorting with their enemies, which is part of what God's concern was. And so that's what's going on now. So we have that they're writing, they're like family members, they're writing back and forth. And it says, moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. So you can, you can picture how this works. Basically, anytime there's a chance, the nobles are telling Nehemiah, hey, Tobiah's a good guy. Here's a good thing he did. Here's another good thing he did. Hey, did you hear Tobiah did this? Hey, Tobiah's great. They're trying to convince Nehemiah Tobiah is a good guy, despite Nehemiah's 52-day experience with Tobiah where he hasn't been a good guy. But not only that, but they're breaking all the confidence, all the confidences that they have with Nehemiah. Everything that he says, they're telling Tobiah. So they're stirring up trouble. They're stirring up trouble and they're increasing the, the, the division. Uh, and they're trying to, they're just trying to win over Nehemiah. It's yet another ploy, but now it's within his own inner circle. And then it says, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. And I think what that means is that as, as they're telling you how good Tobiah is, and then Nehemiah's saying things, probably some of them about how not good Tobiah is, and they're telling Tobiah these things, then Tobiah is using that information that he's receiving from the nobles, information that was supposed to be in confidence, he's using that against Nehemiah to intimidate him. But here's the most interesting thing about all this. That is the last we hear about Tobiah. Nehemiah literally ends this part of the story with that sentence. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. He doesn't talk about his response. He doesn't talk about what Tobiah does from this point forward. He just ends it here. He goes on with the book of Nehemiah, but he doesn't talk about Tobiah anymore. And to me, it is very characteristic of Nehemiah that he's able to actually let it go. Again, the, the dog barks and the caravan drives on. That's what he's doing even in the telling of this. He's just telling us the dog barked. But he's not telling us that they stopped the caravan and dealt with it. He's not telling us as hard as it would be to know that your own men, your own nobles have been consorting with him. And now he's using it against you. There's so much that I would want to say about that in my memoir if I were Nehemiah. There's so much complaining I would want to go into. There's so much justification and defense I would want to throw at this moment. Nehemiah doesn't do any of that. He's like, and that's what Tobiah did. And now let's talk about something else. <laughs> you know, it's it is, again, very characteristic of who Nehemiah is, that he's able to let this go. He's able to just say, yeah, that happened, and move on. And that's the end of uh, chapter six. Meredith. Well, I really like his response, too, because it's, um, I mean, it's just a great example for the Israelites and the Jews that are there. I mean, if he gets a involved at all in the drama I, I think things would have been like a lot harder but his like show of faith too and God is just incredible by you know just kind of ignoring that and I wonder even if he just even responded a little bit he did because like for their benefit you know and for them you know being like oh my goodness yeah and I, I want to take advantage of this moment. I think that's really good, Meredith, really good. I, I, it is a great example. Um, and as you were saying that, it was making me think of the fact that it's a, it's a hard example and because not everyone will see it. Um, and I want to take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of you in this room right now that, that are not in my congregation. I am not your pastor. So I'm going to speak for a moment in support of, of pastors, and hopefully you won't think I'm just support, speaking in support of me. Um, and, and in my church, we haven't had this drama, but in the past, we certainly have. One of the hardest things about being a pastor 
is that there are so many moments where you have to take an accusation, an allegation, a complaint, a concern, which has been spread, a confidence which has been broken. And now there've been people who have been talking about it. And one of the hardest things as a pastor is to take that and not talk about it and let it go, even though you know there will be people who will believe it. And, but you can't defend it because it gives it too much credence as well as requires you to share confidences that you don't want to break. And, and I think that's, I, I don't know a pastor in the world. And I, I spent five years coaching pastors, talking to lots of pastors across the country. And, and I don't know, I literally, and I have a lot of pastor friends and I literally don't know a pastor of more than three or four years who hasn't had to deal with that exact situation where they haven't had to decide I am either going to defend myself or I am going to let this go. And it is very, very hard not to defend yourself. But you guys to know this about your pastors, there are probably moments that they have chosen not to defend themselves. And you may have wondered why. And you may have thought, well, maybe it's maybe whatever is true because they're not defending themselves or, or you, you don't even know because they haven't talked about it. You haven't even heard it. But I just want you to know, almost every pastor I know lives with that knowledge that there are things that people think about them that are wrong, that they can never respond to without themselves, you know, being guilty of the same sins and the same lack of character that the people who spread the information have. And I just want you to know about that. So you can pray for your pastors, maybe appreciate that they, that's a thing they live with. That's an example they give you that you may not even see. That's what's hard about it. You can't even say to people, see, that's why I'm taking the opportunity now, because you can't say to people in your own congregation, let me share with you how I did not respond to this thing that I'm not going to tell you about because that would be responding to it. So I just want you guys to think about that. I, I, it's one of the things that I think you can appreciate about your pastor. And, and by the way, if you are, I don't think any of you are, so I feel comfortable saying this too. I, this is one of the things I tell people. If you're in a church where you feel the pastor is spending most of his time defending himself, um, it's reasonable to ask whether that's where you should be. Um, not because the accusations are true, but because the pastor has lost his focus. See, Nehemiah never loses focus. He knows what his task is. He knows what his mission is. He knows what his job is. It's about building the community and building the wall. It's not about building himself. And so he's willing to let Tobiah try to intimidate him and just move on because there's more important things at stake. And pastors who forget that, forget it to the detriment of their community and their mission. Um, but pastors who don't, you'll never know. <laughs> and that's why I just want you to know that. That's probably happening with some of your pastors. So anyway, enough about that. All right. Um, any questions, any comments, any last thoughts on uh, on Nehemiah 4 through 6? Well, I just said this was encouraging today. I didn't realize how encouraging like Nehemiah is. Good. I mean, I, it was just struck me more this time. Good. Well, I'm glad. I, I love Nehemiah as a as a character. Jolene says, yes, very encouraging. I think that's interesting what Meredith said, because we can apply that, keeping our focus where it belongs instead of going down rabbit trails when we're uh, distracted. Yeah, boy, can we ever. It's, yeah. Or discouraged. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Nehemiah is kind of one of those amazing people who never appears to be discouraged. He's sad at times. He's angry at times but he never appears to be discouraged. He's just always pretty confident. We just keep going, we'll get there. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the beginning of the story, he's all like, he gets this letter and he's all like, oh, okay, I gotta do something about that. Okay, I'm gonna pray yeah. about it. Okay, now I'm gonna go talk to the king. Um, <laughs> yep. 
Yep. No, it's really true. Uh, Jolene said distracted or criticized without cause. And I, yeah, he had a lot of that, didn't he? I mean, mm -hmm. he had a lot of criticism. Yeah, without cause. that's true. That makes mm -hmm. it even, yeah, that's even. So, and, and he does have this a knack, which I think is important. Um, and I don't think I always get exactly right as a pastor, but he has this knack to know when to pay attention to something and when to not. Um, you know, and, and I think it's easy to get that backwards, you know, to pay attention to the dog mm -hmm. that's barking at the caravan and then not pay attention to the guy in your own midst who's got a legitimate grievance. It's it's hard, uh, honestly. Um, and it's it's far easier to either respond to everything or respond to nothing. Yeah, and you see pastors, by the way, who do both and leaders and managers who do both. And that doesn't work very well, but it's easier because you don't have to think about it. It's much harder to say, do I do I take this bait or do I not take this bait? And maybe that leads back to Nehemiah's real strength, which is prayer, that he's kind of always checking with God on that, you know, well, God, do I, do I deal with this? Do I not deal with this? You know, and when he doesn't, he's always like, okay, God, you deal with it. Um, I know you're real and I know you're dealing with it. So I don't have to It's kind of, kind of what he sees. So, all right, you guys all have a good night. Good to see you guys. Good to chat. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.